Morning, saints. Let us pray. Father, you are our God, and it is our great pleasure and delight, privilege to be here this morning with one another gathered as a collection of saints to worship you. And as we turn now to your word, to open it, to read a portion of your word and to consider it together, we do this as an act of worship. We confess to you that even in this we need your help. We pray that your Holy Spirit would bless us and help us by helping us to understand the things that we're about to read, helping us to understand their significance, not just in the immediate context, but in the context of all of Scripture and in the context of our lives, that we might worship you rightly that we might cherish the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who by your decree has brought us from death to life. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11. We are getting into some of the long-ish chapters. And so we're beginning to build up our endurance. We're going to need it here in verses or chapters 14, 15. So you can think of this morning as some endurance training as we stand together. We're going to read this whole chapter. Those of you who were with us back in in Joshua, find somebody who was here when we read Joshua together. We stood for, uh, I think we stood for like 20 minutes straight. You can find one of those people and see what that was like. This is not going to be quite like that. It's only 42 verses. But we're going to, I'm 47. We're going to read all of them. And then we'll consider them together. Leviticus chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall not touch their carcasses. 
they are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that has not fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that has not fins and scales is detestable to you. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, any raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until evening. And whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. The mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose. It must be put into water, and it shall be unclean until the evening, then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, and you shall break it. Any food in it that could be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which every part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean. But whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. If any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet 
Any swarming thing that swarms on the ground you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. You may be seated. Now, it may seem somewhat out of place to go from singing such glorious things about the gospel of Jesus Christ to reading things like this. Insects and birds of prey and fish and different kinds of animals that you can and can't eat. What on earth does any of this have to do with anything? I mean, we're now getting into some of the material that can make Leviticus such an enigma. If you just jump down to to, to chapter 12, chapter 12 is all about how long women are to remain unclean after bearing children. You scan further down to chapters 13 and 14, that's about various outbreaks of leprosy and what to do about them. Chapter 15 is about male and female bodily discharges and what to do about those. At least on the surface, that's what these texts are about. And and we're not quite sure what to take from it. We're Jesus people. It is is not our conviction that we interpret the Old Testament as if Jesus never came. In in fact, we can't do that. Jesus said in in John 5.39 to the Jews, he He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. And on the road to Emmaus, Jesus interpreted to those two disciples he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And then as we, as we look at the apostles, we find them modeling for us. As they read the Old Testament in the New Testament, we find they refuse to read the Old Testament as if, as if Jesus never came. And, and so we know that we're supposed to do that, but we come to texts like this, and we just don't know how. Now... We're not going to do that. We are not going to read this text as if Jesus never came. We're also not going to ignore the original context. We're not going to do that at all. It's just that we're not going to stop with the original context. We're going to continue with the, what we would call the continuing context of the Old Testament. What, what do we find this text... How do we find it influencing the rest of the Old Testament? And then we'll consider the, the complete context of, of all of the entire Bible. And we'll do that in order to understand these verses rightly. And when we do that, we'll see that the whole section calls for moving a person from death to life. It calls for moving a person from death to life 
which can only be accomplished for us and in us by the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Now, there are some moral implications which we'll pick up along the way, but the big idea is that these laws send man down a road toward Jesus Christ. Now, let's see how. Remember that in chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, we saw this last time, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, they are priests. They, in chapter 10, have just offered what what Moses called strange fire, unauthorized worship before God, and that resulted in their immediate deaths with their dead bodies defiling the tent of meeting. And part of the remedy for that defilement includes instructions like these to the people through the priesthood about how to remain clean before God so as to avoid such a debacle in the future and therefore enjoy God's presence. And so it's going to be important for us, no matter where we find ourselves, certainly in Leviticus, it's going to be important for us, no matter where we find ourselves anywhere in the Bible, to be reminded over and over of where we find ourselves in the theological context of the Scriptures. And so with that in mind, here's a key idea that runs through this whole book of Leviticus. We've we've heard it before. We're going to keep hearing it. And it's a key idea that runs through the whole Bible, and it is this. It's the first point in your notes, if you have those notes. Fellowship with God is life and blessedness. Separation from God is death and cursedness. Fellowship with God is life and blessedness. Separation from God is death and cursedness. That idea is behind the whole sacrificial system. Fellowship with God is life and blessedness. Separation from God is death and cursedness. That is the lesson of Eden. When man lived in fellowship with God in the garden, he had life and blessedness, but he sinned and was then removed from God's presence. And to be separated from God is death and cursedness. Now, the the camp of Israel is set up to depict this idea. It is set up to depict this idea that nearness to God is life and separation from God is death. A few weeks ago, we considered that everything, everything in existence, according to the law of Moses, is separated into two groups, holy and common. Everything is separated into two groups, holy and common. Well, in the very center of the camp of Israel... We have the holy. That's where the tabernacle is. This is where where the glory of God is. The glory of God fills that tabernacle. And so the, the closer that one is to the center, the closer the one is to His glory, the more vibrant is life and the more blessed is that person. If you move out from the holy, then you enter what Moses refers to as the common. The common is further divided into two other groups, the clean and the unclean. So the clean may reside inside the camp of of Israel. The unclean reside outside the camp. So the clean, they're inside the camp. The clean can't enter the tabernacle. 
because only the holy can enter the tabernacle. The clean are inside the camp, but the unclean must go outside the camp where the nations are. And so as one moves from the holy outward toward the unclean, one is moving from life toward death. And so the more tainted a person is by sin, and the more, the more affected by death that person is, and, and further removed that person is going to be from God's life-giving presence. Conversely, as one moves from the unclean toward the holy, one is moving from death toward life. And so if you're unclean, you want to be clean. And if you're clean, you want to be holy because God is holy and you want to be close to Him. And this is why God told Aaron in chapter 10, you must distinguish between the holy and the common and between the clean and the unclean. Why? Because there's two, there's two reasons why you must distinguish between those things. First of all, so that you can remain close to Him. And secondly, so that you can reflect His character. And Distinguishing among those things is what these last chapters of the book of Leviticus are all about. You must distinguish these things so that you can be holy as God is holy and enjoy His presence. Which brings us to a second key in your notes. These cleanliness laws are about avoiding or overcoming death in order to enjoy life. They are about avoiding or overcoming death in order to enjoy life. And we'll see this in each section of chapters 11 through 15. But the, the first little section of this pertains to clean and unclean animals. Okay, And this is what we've just read in verses 1 through 23. If you want to scan through and see, see just what parts of the chapter pertain to what, verses 1 through 23 is about unclean and clean animals. He first talks about land animals, and then he talks about sea animals, then birds, then flying insects. And as he goes through, he says, if you'll remember, well, you can eat this, you can't eat this. And here's why you can't eat what you can't eat. It's unclean for you. Or... In the case of some of the birds and the insects, he, he uses the word detestable. It is detestable for you. The clean animals, you can eat. Now, there's been a lot of speculation over the centuries about why God identifies some animals as clean and other animals as unclean. I don't have time to tell you all the different, all the different scenarios that people have come with, up with to, to explain that. I'm just going to tell you what I find most plausible given everything that we read here. Cleanness and uncleanness has to do with association with life and death respectively. Okay? And so God is life, fellowship with Him is life and blessedness, and therefore those who approach Him must also be full of life. And those people are called clean. The unclean are those who in some sense manifest a degree of death in that they exhibit less than physical wholeness. And that's why when God is saying, here's the kind of Levites that can serve me in the tabernacle, He says, Levites that have a particular physical abnormality, they cannot serve me in the tabernacle. It's because He's identifying a lack of physical wholeness 
as a picture of this cleanness versus uncleanness, this, this life versus death. The unclean are those who in some sense manifest a degree of death in that they exhibit less than physical wholeness. And so he has done this then in how he has delineated which animals are clean, which animals are unclean. And so if we, if we were to take the time to walk through all of these animals, we would find that in some way all of these clean animals exhibit wholeness in respect to their group and the unclean animals ex- exhibit a lack of wholeness as it pertains to their group. Land animals, according to God, exhibit wholeness if they have these two criteria. They chew the cud and they split the hoof. An animal that doesn't do one of those things is exhibiting a lack of wholeness as it pertains to land animals. Fish exhibit wholeness or sea creatures exhibit wholeness if they have fish and um, fins and scales. If they don't have one of those two things, they are unclean. They are exhibiting a lack of wholeness. They are exhibiting a degree of death in God's economy and therefore they cannot be eaten by clean people. Birds mentioned in this chapter, they're they're all associated with death in that they are birds of prey. The insects mentioned have modes of locomotion that do not coincide perfectly with their habitat. And so to eat these organisms is to take that degree of death into oneself and to become unclean. And that then necessitates further removal from the presence of God who is life. And so these food laws give an opportunity for the people of Israel multiple times daily to consciously say, I'm going to choose life with God rather than death. I want to be with God. That's verses 1 through 23. Verses 24 through 40 pertain to how to deal with uncleanness caused by contact with a dead body particularly these dead animals. So when one touches a dead animal, that person becomes unclean. When any animal dies, except an animal that has been killed as as part of a ritual slaughter, so this animal is going to be offered to God as an offering, that animal is clean. You can touch that animal. Any other animal that dies, that animal is unclean. If you touch it, you become unclean. So even in these, this last half of the chapter, we're still dealing with avoiding or overcoming death. So he deals with, with dead and flying insects first, then he deals with land animals, and then he de- deals with dead crawling creatures. Now, because we live in a fallen world, there are dead things everywhere. So it's a virtual inevitability that a person is going to come into contact with dead things. And so God has made a provision for becoming clean. And if we were to read the rest of Leviticus right now, we would find that among the things that can make you unclean, this is the easiest to overcome, touching, touching a dead animal. It requires almost nothing except waiting. You've got to wash your clothes. You've got to wash your clothes and wait until evening and then you will be clean. There's no sacrifice needed. If the dead animal or insect touches a vessel for cooking or, or eating, depending on what that vessel is, there are different ways of dealing with that. If it's an earthenware vessel, then that earthenware vessel needs to be broken and obviously it's never going to be used again. If it's not earthenware, then you're just going to wash it. It's going to be unclean until evening and then it can be used again. But again, we're we're dealing with that same picture. All of these things are saying to us, to the Israelites, 
Death is a problem. Death carries uncleanness that makes one unfit to go near God who is life. And the, the person reading this should, should be thinking, I want to be near God, near to Him. So I must avoid death. And that's what these laws are for. Avoid this so that you can be near God. And so I'm not going to eat these things. And as much as possible, I'm going to avoid touching dead things. And if something dead touches me, then I'm going to appropriately address it so that I can be near God once again. All of these things are building into the minds of the people a constant awareness of the holiness of God and the great necessity for their own pursuit of holiness and avoidance of sin and death so that they might remain near the source of life who is God. To this end, verses 44 and 45 are illuminating. Look there again, verses 44 and 45. The Lord says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Very simply, he's saying, I'm your God. I'm holy. I've chosen you to be mine. Therefore, you shall be holy as I'm holy. You see the word consecrate there. That that is the verb form of the word holy. And so he's just saying to them, look, holify yourselves. And and all of this is a a call back to the ideal of Eden. Come back to the original mandate of man imaging God. Remember back in in, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we're told that God created man in His own image. God is and has been since Genesis chapter 3 setting things into motion to bring man back to that ideal of man living in fellowship with him and imaging him perfectly. And so when he says, I'm holy, you be holy, he's saying to them, go back to Eden. Be near me and be like me. He's calling for a reversal of the devastation of the fall. Instead of moving away from me in sin and death, move toward me in holiness and life. I am holy. You be holy. Be like me. Image me as man was called to do in the beginning. Do these things. Do these laws and you'll be near me and you'll be like me. Now that that is a glorious idea. That, That is fantastic. To be like God. To be near God. Every human being who has their head on straight should say, yes, that's what I want. That is exactly what I want. I want to be near God. I want to be like God. The cleanliness laws, though, they picture a grave reality. And that's a third key that we're going to pick up now. The cleanliness laws picture a grave reality. Or you might say they set up a grave reality. And that is this. Death is not merely physical and external, but spiritual and internal. Death is not merely physical and external, but spiritual and internal. 
you know, we might, we might look here at these laws in chapter 11 and, and think, well, these are pretty simple. And the Israelites, may, may even as, as, as they're receiving these for the first time, well, these are pretty easy. And I, I could do these. I can avoid unclean animals for food, no sweat. I mean, most of us like shellfish, but, but I can forego that in order to be near God. That's no big deal. The, the problem is that as we follow the storyline of the Israelites throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we find that they can't. They can't. And, and these, these are the easy laws. We, we start to get into some harder laws as we go past chapter 16 into chapter 17. Some of the harder laws. We get into chapters 17 and following. We may f- find some we think, oh, that was going to be kind of hard. I think I might be able to do it, but it'll be kind of hard. These are the easy ones. I cannot eat eagle. I can do that. That's, at least I think that. I think that. But listen to this. Listen, listen to how Paul talks about all of this. Paul talks about the law in Romans chapter 7. This is how Paul talks about the command against coveting in Romans chapter 7. He reveals that the dead sinful human heart is so dead and sinful that it only craves what the law says it can't have. And so in Romans 7, 8, Paul writes this, sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So that dead, sinful human heart inside of me, it hears no shellfish. And very shortly, that heart, not stomach, but that heart starts to think, man, shellfish sounds really good right about now. In fact, nothing else sounds good to me right now. It's actually even worse than that. The Israelites, they found not only that, but write this down. Write down Jeremiah 7.30. Jeremiah 7.30. Jeremiah 7.30 comes way far into the future from the point of, of the people's receiving Leviticus 11. But Jeremiah 7.30 reads this way, and, and listen and see if you don't, if you don't hear some, some terminology that we've just heard, okay? For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. Let me re- read it again. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. Now we've heard that word detestable, haven't we? That is a word that the Old Testament authors, they they don't throw it around. It's a word that's used primarily of those particular unclean foods in Leviticus 11. Now, you might write this down also, Ezekiel 8.10. Ezekiel 8.10. Now, in in that chapter, Ezekiel 8, the Lord gives Ezekiel a similar vision. I'm going to come back and say something more about Jeremiah 7 in a second, but I want to give you Ezekiel as well, and just just to show you that Jeremiah is not a one-off. 
in Ezekiel 8, the Lord gives Ezekiel a vision where Ezekiel sees the same thing, but it's more explicit. Now listen to this, Ezekiel 8.10. So I went in, and he means he went into the sanctuary. I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. Now there in Ezekiel 8.10, the word loathsome is the same word for detestable that we found in Leviticus 11. And so what we're finding is that these prophets are, are, are revealing that not only did the people find themselves unable to not eat these foods, not, not only were they not able to abstain from, from taking these things into their bodies, but they brought images of these foods, these animals, into the sanctuary of Yahweh and worshipped them. They, they brought death into the Holy of Holies and bowed down before it, so desperately dead and sinful were their hearts. That's what's going on inside of fallen man. Death is inside of us, moving us away from God. And this is the point that Jesus makes in Mark 7. Pastor Rick read for us this morning where Jesus said, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And Jesus goes on to say, for from within, out of the heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And as Pastor Rick read for us this morning, there's that little aside there in the middle of that passage where Mark notes, thus he declared all foods clean. I take that to mean that The food laws had served their purpose. They'd showed there's something deeper at work in man that separates him from God. It's not mere outward ritual or the failure to observe outward ritual that separates man from God, but it is his indwelling sin and death that separates him from God. And so the great and obvious question becomes, How does a person move from death to life? How does a person move from outside the camp to the presence of God if death exists inside him? How how do you fix that? This is going to become even clearer as we move into Leviticus that that's the problem. Death comes out of me, not into me. How then can I be near And stay near God, who is life. I am death. I am spiritually dead, and it moves me to natural, wholehearted rebellion, and I am rushing headlong toward inevitable physical death. What can be done? That is how this text, and texts like it, 
move me toward Christ because these things call for an answer that only comes in Christ. Which is where we we find our fourth key this morning. The dead in sin are made alive in Christ through faith. The dead in sin are made alive in Christ through faith. The Gospel of John makes this so clear. I'm going to give you a, a host of verses from, just from the Gospel of John to make this point. If you just search for the word life in John, you'll see that Jesus is the source of spiritual life that we need to overcome the death from sin that separates us from God. And, and the book repeatedly makes the point, first of all, that Jesus has life, that Jesus is life. Just a few references to that effect. That Jesus is life. John 1.4 says, In Him was life. John 5.26, 5.26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. 6.48 says, Jesus says this, He says, I am the bread of life. Now, is that good news for those, those who can say, I am death? Great news to hear somebody saying, I am life. The question is, what can he do about my problem? Well, John tells us that not only does does Jesus have life, but this, this Son of God, he gives life to those who trust in him. Now, on this score, there are way too many of these to, to quote from, from John in the, the brief time that we have this morning. Here are just a few. 336. 336, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now that whoever that He's talking about, that whoever comes exclusively from a sphere of people who are dead. Whoever believes has eternal life. There's nobody in this whoever who starts out alive. They all start out dead. Whoever dead believes has eternal life. 6.40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. 11.25, Jesus says, I, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He gives life to dead people who believe in Him. He does that. He does that by first taking the sinner's death. He takes their death from them. And here are a few verses to that, to that extent. 10.11. In 10.11, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He dies for them. Similarly, 15.13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in, in, in just in grabbing that, that Old Testament language, the Lamb of God, he's saying that this Lamb is going to die in the place of these people 
that their sin might be removed from them. Jesus takes the sin of the sinner on Himself. He goes to the cross and suffers the penalty of that sin, which is death. Three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead, proving His victory over sin and death and validating His ability to give life to those who trust in Him, which He does. And once that exchange takes place, death for life, then the believer has life in himself, animating and empowering his life and obedience. This is what Jesus was teaching the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus said to that woman at the well, He said, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty, but the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And and, and as we're granted to overhear Jesus' prayer in John 17, 3, we learn that this life is knowing God and Christ. And so the believer knowing God and Christ is then empowered by their life flowing through the believer as indicated in John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 7, speaking of the indwelling spirit, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so the believer in Christ, the believer in Christ has moved from death to life, not by outward acts of ritual avoidance of foods, and not even by personal victory over sin, because the sinner can't do that. His sin and death are internal to him. No, The believer has moved from death to life because by faith, his sin and death were imputed to Christ. And Christ's righteousness was imputed to him. And now he lives because Christ lives in him. So, rather than being spiritually dead, he is now spiritually alive through the work of Christ and therefore able to enjoy fellowship with God who is life. Christ has brought him from outside the camp into the center of the camp where there is life forevermore. Now, we would be remiss if we did not look at what the New Testament has to say about these particular laws in Leviticus 11. I want to point out just a few things to you very quickly. I mentioned very briefly in passing earlier that in the camp of Israel, moving out from the intense holiness of that tabernacle, there are increasing degrees of of death as you move out. And on the outside, it's where the nations are, okay? Represents death out there. The Gentiles, they're outside the covenant of God. They're completely separated from God. And so, living inside the camp and living within the law of God, including these cleanliness laws, including these food laws, represented one of the major ways that the people of Israel were distinguished from the nations. So, the Israelites were clean, the Gentiles were unclean. 
wonderful thing happens, though, in Christ. Turn, turn with me to Acts chapter 10, if you would, please. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 begins with a Gentile centurion named Cornelius seeing in a vision an angel instructing him to go and see Simon Peter. You with me? Gentile centurion named named Cornelius sees an angel in a vision saying, go and find Simon Peter. So Cornelius sends some messengers to go and find Simon Peter. All right. Now, we're going to begin by reading in verse 9, Acts 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey, they being Cornelius' messengers, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, as Peter is, is pondering this, Cornelius' messengers arrive, ask him to go with them, and he does. Okay, so we're going to skip down to verse 24. On the following day, they entered Caesarea, they being Peter and Cornelius' messengers. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered... Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So now you see here, Peter has interpreted the vision. That that, that there there is now no unclean food indicates that now there is no barrier between him and the Gentiles. It is not simply that, it is not as simple as that the food represents the people, but those laws were a separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul, Paul addresses this same issue in Ephesians chapter 2. If you, if you want to write that down, you can read all of Ephesians chapter 2, particularly verses 11 and following. But he, Paul there talks about the barrier of the dividing wall of the law contained in, in ordinances, rules, that it was a law between Jews and Gentiles. But that has been removed in Christ. And the law of Moses, it it put a partition between Jew and Gentiles, has been removed in Jesus. The gospel that first went to the Jews has now been offered to everyone. And so we see Peter then preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his companions. They are saved. And Peter then in early chapter 11 of Acts, he explains all this to the church in Jerusalem. That church consisting of Jews, 
in, in Jerusalem. And that Jewish church in Jerusalem, they respond in this way in Acts 11.18. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, now given all of these things, I, I would suggest that there are numerous things that we should think about these Old Testament food laws in light of the New Testament. I'm going to give you four things very quickly. You can write them down if you want. You don't have to. First of all, I would suggest that those Old Testament food laws were not detailing inherent rights and wrongs. In other words, it is not inherently immoral to eat a particular kind of bird, a particular kind of fish, a particular kind of land animal or insect. The reason I would say that is this. Moral laws can't be morally necessary at one time and morally unnecessary at another time because all morality is founded upon the holy character of God. If something is morally wrong, it will be morally wrong into eternity because God's character doesn't change. But these food laws changed. It's now fine to eat these animals. So says Jesus in Mark 7, and the angel, or the, the, the angel of the vision in, in Acts 10, and in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Okay? A second thing that we should note about these, these food laws related to that, these laws were intended to, to picture the necessity to be like God, set apart from the world. So for a time, they, they were a wall around the people of Israel setting them apart from everyone else. They were a picture of holiness in that God is set apart from everything that is common, so also these laws serve to set the people of God apart from everything that is common. A third thing that they did is that they exposed man's own inability, his own inherent inability to move from death to life. That is, these laws, along with all the other laws, they showed that man has sin and death buried inside of him. And he needs a life-giving force to overcome his sin and death and bring him to spiritual life. That force is a person, Jesus Christ. Fourth, these particular laws are not binding on us. But the fact that they're not binding on us does not mean that we have no calling to pursue holiness. That these particular laws have no binding on us does not mean that we have no calling to pursue holiness. Not at all. In Christ, we pursue holiness with great striving. In fact, if you, if you are a student of the New Testament, you would be really hard-pressed to arrive at the fact that New Testament believers are not called to pursue holiness with great striving. But here are some things that make our striving in the New Covenant different than any kind of striving that took place in the Old Covenant. I'll give you four of these as well. First of all, our pursuit of holiness takes place in the context of perpetual fellowship with the Father that is absolutely secured by the atoning work of Christ. I'll say that again in case you're trying to write these down. Our pursuit of holiness takes place in the context of perpetual fellowship with the Father absolutely secured by the atoning work of Christ. Second, our pursuit of holiness takes place in the power of the indwelling Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ dwells inside of us. That's what Jesus was talking about there in, in John chapter 7. 
fact, in John chapter 7, the, the, the text notes that, that prior to Jesus giving the Spirit, they didn't have the Spirit. He's talking about the Spirit who hadn't been given yet. That, that well of water flowing up inside of us to eternal life. This is an empowering Spirit that helps us to obey. That is a new covenant thing. It's not an old covenant thing. So our striving is Spirit-empowered. Third, our holiness is driven by the desires of a regenerate heart. We have, we have new hearts, living hearts, not dead, stony hearts. It helps. We have, we have hearts that love God, not hearts that hate God. Fourth, the laws that we are, obey are broadly to. The laws that we obey are broadly to. Love God, love others. Love others as ourselves. Now, the New Testament helpfully gives us guidance about what that looks like in various situations. It helps to flesh that out. And in doing that, it gives us other, other explicit laws, New Testament laws. But, but we, we, we broadly characterize all of that under the law of Christ. Interestingly, the New Testament notes that there may be times that these laws of love will require us not to eat certain things. Not because those things are inherently unclean, but we do those, we do that out of love for someone else. If someone else's conscience might be harmed by our eating a particular thing, we don't eat that thing. And what all that what all this means is that in Christ, in Christ we have moved from death to life by faith. Once dead, we are now spiritually alive forevermore. And by virtue of the spiritual effects of His work in us, we then continue to progress from the character and conduct of the old self to the character and conduct of Christ. Hallelujah for the work of Jesus Christ who moves us from death to life. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for all of Your Word. We thank You for how the Lord Jesus Himself and His apostles have modeled for us how to read the Old Testament. We pray, Lord, that You would grant us to continue to learn how to do it and to to learn how to do it well, that we would do it responsibly. We thank you, Father, that we do not read an Old Testament that is empty of any trace of Christ and therefore leading us to uh, hopelessness in ourselves, but rather that, that drives us to Jesus. We pray, Father, that uh, this morning and this afternoon and the coming week as we, as we think about these things, that we would love your holiness, that we would desire to be in your presence, that we would desire to be like you, and that we would revel in the truth that these things have been made possible 
and that they have been accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for those who may be here who have never turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. We pray that today would be the day that they would do that, that they would be burdened for their sins, that they would feel the weight of an approaching eternity separated from you in hell. And that that seeing that eternity approach, they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus alone to make them right with you, to bring them into your presence forevermore. Those of us, Father, who have already been reconciled to you, grant us to walk in joy, walk in a great love for holiness, walk in joy of a relationship with you that has already been earned, doesn't need to be earned again, but can just be enjoyed. And, and in that joy, let it, let it fuel us, Lord, for, for a pursuit of holiness that glorifies you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.